morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. Actually, I'm going to read the last two verses of Romans 5. So Romans 5 verse 20 is where we're going to begin. It's good to see everybody. The crowd is growing. God bless you this morning. Fathers, happy Father's Day. Mothers, if you're thinking you didn't say that on Mother's Day, you are right. We are sorry. Please forgive us. But I'm sure that you already have. So we're good. Thank you. Okay, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather... Offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, please, please wake us up as you teach us by your spirit from this text. And, and this is so big. I know that on my own, I'm not enough here, so I beg for your grace as I preach and your grace for those who are listening now. For Jesus' sake, we ask this, amen. Well, in days past, the prayer was often prayed, Father, forgive us for our dead works. Or, Father, save us from our dead works. And this was called repentance from dead works. And what this typically meant was uh, there was a prayer asking God to please, please forgive us when we use our works, our good works, to try and earn our forgiveness from God or our good works to try to earn our standing with God, therein working for God's approval or even working in our good deeds alone to atone for sins. As if the cross of Jesus Christ did nothing or did not do enough. Which if 
course, that's anti-gospel. And they're rightly called dead, as in it leads to dead works. And I know that the prayer, uh, repentance from dead works, is not very common. It was, but I don't believe it is now. And I think that's why Paul wrote in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law, good works, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Because our good works are not good enough. And working for God's favor actually forfeits God's favor. And if you think about it, if you really think about it, only in the gospel do we find Christians not only repenting of our sins, but we repent of our righteousness when we try to use our righteousness as a means to add to or make up for some kind of perceived deficit in the gospel, assuming deficiency in the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of justification given by faith alone, rooted in Christ alone. So I want you to think with me even more. A legalist, someone who has their own sets of sins, and if they keep those sins or don't commit those sins, then they're good with God. A legalist will eventually repent of their sin. A moralist will eventually repent of their sin and tell everyone that they did. An antinomianist, and that's the person who says, look, there's, there's no rules, everything's fine with God, you just do what's right for you, and they're certain that God will never be troubled with sin, and antinomianists will never repent of sin. But, but in the case of the legalists and the moralists, they will never repent of their works, their good deeds, because their works are the way they relate to God. So the French philosopher, philosopher, excuse me, and mathematician, Blaise Pascal, he was right when he said, there are only two kinds of people in the world. The righteous who understand themselves to be sinners and the sinners who believe themselves to be righteous. All of which to say and remind us that all of chapter 6 and all of chapter 7 are there together to explain what Paul said, which was dramatic and dangerous in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. You'll see that if your Bible's open, about law and sin and about grace abounding in light of our sin which and in light of the doctrine of justification. So Paul says, for the Christian, grace reigns, grace abounds. The, the law cannot stop sin. Rule-keeping cannot decrease sin. It actually, Romans 5.20, increases sin. Therefore, when sin increases, even in morality, grace increases all the more. So, Paul's not giving us a license to sin. And he's just not explaining here uh, holiness and sanctification. Now, Romans 6 is often preached that way, but it falls so short because He's simply refuting the charge that is often brought against the doctrine of justification that Paul's gospel is way too soft. Or if you like, there's way too much grace in that gospel and there's not enough morality in your gospel, Paul. Paul, if you tell people they're always going to be forgiven, they'll take advantage of that. You, you need something else. You, you need uh, some more morality. And, and I can hear the person say, hey, Paul, try to run a family that way, where sin increases, grace increases even more. You'll have a bunch of kids with criminal records who won't respect you and won't respect others and take advantage of you. And you would want to say, really? Really? 
I read this week where a mom was bringing some treats to a youth gathering, and the youth leader was writing Romans chapter 5, verse 20 on the board. And so he only wrote, where sin increases, grace much more increases. And the mom was shocked when she read it. There was no textual Romans 5.20 written as of yet. And so she didn't know her Bible very well. And she thought it was the youth leader's actual words and not God's word. And the mom said to the youth leader, my teen doesn't need more grace. They need to just straighten up and get serious. They need to grow up. Now let's be honest. We hear that a lot. Maybe have even said it in our families in politics, in business, in the church. Straighten up. What's wrong with you? But not more grace. Now listen, there is plenty of morality in the gospel. It's just not ours. It's Jesus's. Hence the question, chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Okay, so this is like a diatribe. There's some actual or mythical person out there that Paul's talking to. And the person says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And Paul's answer is like, by no means. You're out of your mind. God forbid. In other words, if people are out of control morally, it's not because of the gospel. It's probably because they don't either understand the gospel or they've never been actually changed by the gospel. Therefore, Paul says in verse 1, gives way to a deep Profound theological truth in verse 2. Do you see it there? We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Okay, living in sin, building a life in sin, building a life under the reign of sin, where repentance would not be um, necessary or even perpetual. Okay, since we died to sin, why in the world would we seek shelter and security in sin? Dwell in sin. Now remember, we said this last week. This is so important. Verse 2 was written in the aorist tense. And what that means, Paul says, this was a one-time event, which is going to last forever. We died to sin once. This is a gospel indicative. It has happened to every Christian at their conversion. But remember, we also said that died to sin does not mean the Christian will no longer want to sin. It does not mean that if, you know, you're a really mature Christian, sin's desire will somehow be weakened over time. No, sin's desire will always be what it is in us. I mean, just think with me. The most terrible sins of the Bible were committed by men way past or at middle age. So just think, and I wrote this down, just think of all the wasted time that people go to those conferences. Uh, how to get rid of sin in your life. What a scam. Also, died to sin does not mean we, that we can renounce sin. Now, we can try, we can say it, but we just can't keep our word. And finally, dead or died to sin does not mean that we ought to be dead in sin. So, again, if we're a true, blue, zealous Christian, serious about sin, we ought to be dead to sin eventually in this body. No. None of that is what Paul means when he writes, we died to sin. But what he does mean, and what he'll go on to explain, is since the Christian is under the reign of grace, chapter 5, verse 21, you no longer live under the reign of sin. In other words, you were moved into a new realm. What's the Disney song, A Whole New World? Yeah, that's it. A whole new world. Okay, and in that world where sin abounds, 
okay? The reign of death, condemnation, wrath, and judgment, well, all that abounds as a result of one man's sin, Adam, the reign of sin, well, now in Christ, grace much more abounds. And remember, this is not like equal grace for equal sin. No, this is an ocean of grace for our sin. In other words, our sin is just crushed by God's grace. So in the reign of grace, will and sin is being defeated. And death for the Christian is nothing to fear. It's just like falling asleep. And the wrath of God, that's been dealt with. And come condemnation from God, that's not on our radar. And judgment on sin for the Christian, that's no longer feared. Remember the great question of Romans 8, who can bring any charge against you? And the answer is, it's God who has justified you. It's God who made you right. Is he going to mess with that? Indeed, in justification, what is true of Jesus Christ is just as true for us. So here, Paul is not saying Christians cannot commit individual acts of sin, nor that a Christian cannot struggle with habitual sins and addictions. However, he is saying that they cannot abide in. They can't remain in the realm of sin. They cannot sin without eventually some distaste of it, a bigger fight against it. They cannot sin without a, this is not what I am moment and a continuous loop. And yes, sometimes that loop is fast, but sometimes, regrettably, it is very, very slow and it takes us a while to get there. So a long time ago in Tennessee, I knew this man. He was 70 years old, 10 grown children, a holy man. And I'm not kidding. He was a holy man. But in his 60s, he left his wife for a bit of a spell for another lady. He lived nine months with her. But nine months into it, he snapped out of it. And he came back weeping and begging his wife to forgive him and take him back. I just can't live that way anymore. Those were his exact words. Right you are, sir. Right you are because you're, you're not in sin's realm anymore. You're under the realm of grace. And you see, if you forget all that, what it's going to do, it's going to lead to a boggled, confused Christian life of ignorance, of arrogance, or hypocrisy. All of which to say, in the reign of grace, sin no longer reigns in us, but sin remains in us. And therefore, a lifelong battle with indwelling sin is to be expected. And honestly, just between you and I, when I'm around a holy Joe, who only speaks of holiness, mostly theirs, or only speaks of others' need you know, to pick it up more, and I don't hear any Jesus talk. And I don't hear, this is really hard to do. And this is just me. When I hear that, I say to myself, dude, what's going on in your life? Because that is classic Phariseeism. Pointing out the sins of others and making yourself appear good by public speaking or by publicly doing good. That won't sell in heaven. Grace will always need to abound. And thank God, Paul writes that it does. So, when chapter 6 is only used as, you know, a secret to holy living, that's not primary here. What Paul is dealing with here is our union with Jesus Christ 
in our justification, the benefits of imputed righteousness, the benefits of our union with Christ, uh, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is way deeper than, hey, Christian, uh, listen up, stop sinning, what's wrong with you? Especially in this context. So here Paul is explaining our union with Christ is objective fact. It's not just subjective feeling. Because of our union with Christ, living life as Christ would live, not only is inevitable for the Christian, it should be expected now. The old man is dead, even though Paul will tell us here in a bit that he keeps kicking and screaming, but he's dead. The new has come, and he speaks of this way uh, by, uh, by way of metaphor. Do you see it there in verse 3? He begins with baptism. Verse 3, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So in baptism, we have a picture, a visible picture of what has taken place in a believer before they ever stepped foot in the water. Okay, and let's give Paul some credit. He's not saying that when you're baptized, that was your salvation moment. No, he spent five chapters telling us of faith in Christ and not baptism in the name of Christ is the key that saves. So here, baptism is just a visible picture of what happened to you in your salvation. And what that means is, is that we were not merely justified, legally declared righteous person who, who's on their own now. No, when you became a Christian, every one of us, you were brought into intimate union with the living Jesus Christ. And I think that's the best way to understand it. When we become a Christian, the Bible says that my life now is fused together with the very life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I am, if you, if you want to use the correct sense of the word that Paul uses there, I am immersed into Jesus Christ. Now, that's a beautiful thought. That's a beautiful thought. Calvin would say, we cannot separate the work of Jesus Christ from the actual person of Jesus Christ, right? So I think you understand this. It's one thing for me to have a picture of my wife on the nightstand. That's nice. But it's a completely different thing and a far better thing to have her in bed with me, right? So it's cool to talk to my wife on the phone. But it's a far better thing to hold her hand, look into her eyes, and have that same conversation. When you became a Christian, you, you were immersed into Jesus Christ. You were fused. You were in union with Jesus Christ. Every bit of him is in every bit of you. Jesus is just flowing all over you. He, he has you in, in hand. So when Luther would be tempted by his flesh and the world and the devil, he would say out loud, get away from me. I'm baptized. Now, when he said that, he didn't mean that, you know, he was baptized to be a Christian. No, what happens in our baptism is God gives us a visible picture, a clear picture of our union with Jesus Christ and the promise of our redemption. You go into the water, you cannot help but to get wet. You're in Christ, you cannot help but to be in Christ. And so all the promises that were brought through our redemption through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross are pictured in baptism. So that in our baptism, our justification is pictured, our adoption, our promised sanctification, our promised glorification, a picture of being filled, covered with the Holy Spirit. All that is, is 
happening or has happened, excuse me, in our conversion. So although sometimes because of my union with Jesus, I want to say to Jesus, get away from me. I am a sinful man. Just leave me now. My baptism, if you would, pictured the promise of my union with Christ and therefore my identification with Christ. And he's not going to get away from me. And neither you. So I am in Christ. He is my champion. He, he is my righteousness. He is my yes and amen. All the promises of God are his. They are mine. He lives before God on my behalf. He is the one who's died for my sins. I am marked with him in my union in, in death and burial. See it there, verse 4, into Christ. All of which is pictured in my baptism. And so verse 4, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Okay, so when Christ was raised from the dead to the praise of God's glory, we were too. We then became different, just like Christ became different. The things that I loved before, they're passing away. The things I love now are here to stay. Verse 4, we too may live a new life. So simply put, we are not justified by our holiness, but rather for holiness, for the purpose that we might grow in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that in our union with Jesus, we are joined with Christ spiritually. Again, every bit of Christ is in every bit of us. Now, Paul even goes deeper because what he says in verses 3 and 4, he says, we've died with Christ. Verse 4, buried with Christ. Verse 4b, raised with Christ. Okay, so when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go for himself and for us. We know that. And he did what we could not possibly do for ourselves. And it was our sin that he carried in his death. Therefore, not only did Christ die for us, okay, in that spiritual sense, we died with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. Verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So in a very real sense, we who are genuinely Christian in Christ, we share in the power of his resurrection. Not merely after we die and go to heaven, but right now we share in the power of his resurrection. Because everyone who has been justified... Everyone who believes savingly in Jesus Christ who, who is a person who has been died with Jesus and has been buried with Jesus and spiritually raised with Jesus. Raised from spiritual death. Well, stay with me, okay? We come into this world biologically alive, but spiritually dead, DOA. And because of this, we come into this world as slaves to sin. Meaning, we just don't participate in sin. We loved to sin. The Bible says we come into this world as slaves to sin. So Augustine, helping us out here, famously said on being slaves to sin, before our conversion, we were like a horse, and Satan was our rider. And Satan ruled by bit and bridle. So when he pulled left, we went left. And when he pulled right, we would go right. He was our master, and we were his slave. But then we were converted by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Okay, so sin does remain, but it's a whole new life now. We walk with Christ, all right? He doesn't ride us like a horse. <laughs> he holds us like a child. He comes into us, and we walk with him. If you like, we hold hands with him, and he is never letting go. And I, and I told myself, I wish it was socially acceptable to hold hands with everybody when you talk with them. It's not. It's creepy, and especially now, you can't do it. But I think holding hands with people when you talk with them would just set the thing to a whole new level. And that's how I think of my union with Christ. He has my hand. He is not letting go. And therefore, this is a whole new life. Everywhere I go, he goes with me. Everything I do, he is there with me. The old, gone. The new has come because the Spirit of God has supernaturally united the Christian into Jesus or with Jesus. So, so just think with me for a moment. Think of the blessings that we have received in our lifetime. Think about how many times you've grumbled because of what you didn't get. Think of how many times you've been lacking in contentment, dissatisfied with the providence of God in your life. Think about how many times you have hated and lied and thieved and drunkenness and impurity and selfishness and grumbling and absolute foolishness. Think about how long it can take you to forgive other people. Think about how you kind of work a room to exalt yourself. Think about all the sins that you've committed that you don't even know you've committed. And think about the fact, Christian, that you are united, you are plunged, you are immersed into Jesus Christ. And you take him with you. You and I take him with you when we do those things. His death, yours. Burial, yours. Resurrection, Yours, raised in the power of the resurrection, yours. His righteousness, yours. So think about what has happened to you. Newness of life. Our lives have been changed, born again. So here's the thing, and this is Paul's argument. How can someone who was dead in sin be made alive, come back to life unchanged? How can that happen? How can someone who was dead be made alive and not be different? How can someone be in slavery and be released from that bondage and not be different? I mean, the biggest change we will ever know in this world takes place when we are reborn into Christ. We've been changed from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, from bondage to freedom, from at home with sin to at home with grace. So again, Paul is saying, look, look at Jesus. You look at him. You think about his love for you on the cross. Look at what he has done for you. Consider what he has done. Now notice that all of this puts the emphasis on Jesus. The redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. Because any call for holy living without the cross is, is useless and dead. So Paul says, Christian, you are in union with Christ. And since this is the way you are, then behave that way. Live like you are. You have a new life. Be what you are. You're in Christ. Live to the praise of your, his glory. He did. You can, you know. You see, that verse one question then becomes much more important now. You see it there? Shall we sin to our heart's content? And see how far we can exploit the grace of God. You know, 
You're in union with Jesus Christ. What a ghastly thought. That's a monstrous thought. And listen carefully. When a person makes that too much grace in your gospel accusation, you can be sure that, number one, their gospel is too small. Two, maybe their gospel isn't even the gospel. And three, their Jesus Christ is some kind of like mythical regional deity who is too much like them. And not, alike, not enough alike the Jesus of the Bible. You see, Christian, too much has been done for you in justification, in Christ, to even suggest such a thing that the people suggested in verse 1. So Paul's like, wake up your heart. Expand your mind. He's bringing us face to face, not with just the work of Jesus, but with the actual person of Jesus who we are in union with. And I promise you, that is the one thing our flesh does not want. Will you think with me for a moment? Generally speaking, when a kid does bad and they're going face to face with their parents, I, when I was a kid, I couldn't even look my dad or mom in the eye. Couldn't. Paul's like, look at Christ square in the eye. Look at his love for you on the cross. When you see people, I don't know if they still do it, but when they've some, done some terrible thing and they're walking out of the courtroom, what do they usually do? Cover up their head and cover up their face. They just don't want to be seen. Maybe now it's because paparazzi, but back then it was shame. Shame. Paul's like, look at him. Look at him. Look at what he did. Look, he died. He sweat, blood, tears, anxiety for you, embarrassed for you, naked on a cross. Taking your blame and taking your sin and, and, and wrath. All of it for you. And you see, when you talk about holiness that way, that strikes the heart in a different way. Because it cuts to the center. Father's Day, we should think about our dads. When my dad would rightly discipline me, this is, this is what he would say often. He would say, Oh, Joe, oh, Joe, how could you? It wasn't demeaning. It wasn't dehumanizing. He's like, how could you? And I'd be like, yeah, Dad, I don't know. I, I know. You're right. How could I? And you see, that is so much more than Jimmy. Okay, Jimmy, you're having trouble with lies, and you're having trouble with lust, and, and you're having trouble with anger, Jimmy. Well, you know, you just need to double down on your Bible and double down on prayer and stop listening to X and start listening to Y and have two hours less on your phone a week and watch TV five hours less a week, and off you go. Now, I'm not saying those things are, are in and of themselves wrong. I'm just saying they are not nearly enough. And there's no gospel truth in them. There's no power in them. And you just don't find Paul saying those kinds of things. You just don't. However, what do you find him saying? You died to sin. You are united to Christ. There is nothing about Jesus and his gospel that you are unattached to. And that is the key to true freedom and true power over sin. Christ in you. The hope of glory and the hope of holiness. Verse 5, you see it? For if you've been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Now Paul goes deeper here. 
What does he mean when he says, our old self has been crucified? Well, first, he's talking about our former human nature. What we were when we came into this world, right? When we said it, we, we were dead in sin, an enemy of God, under God's wrath and curse. And that old person with that single disposition towards sin to do what we please always with a heart of stone, that old person was crucified with Jesus Christ. So, so think, not only did Christ die for our sins, but this means he died for our sinfulness. Okay, that's fundamental. Not only did Jesus Christ die for our sins, but he, he died for our sinfulness. In other words, he removed sin's natural hold on us. He died and killed our original sin. Our moral inability, which we came into the world with, is dead. Okay, so we come in corrupt, ego-centered, self-centered, inconsiderate, falling. And that nature was crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, if you're listening, that just blows the mind. I mean, that is a metaphysical reality. Okay, you, you can't necessarily see it, but it's here in us. Now, please think, if you've been listening, there's just a huge payoff. If Paul just stopped right here, okay, in Christ, buried, raised, old nature dead, you're not a slave to sin any longer. If he just stopped there and there was no Romans 7 and no Romans 8, then you'd have to ask yourself the question, why in the world would we, could we ever sin? Fair enough? I mean, if you're listening, what didn't Jesus do to defeat sin in us? What, what did he miss? He did not miss a thing. Died, buried, raised, united with Christ, in union with the second person, the dynamic second person of the Trinity, old nature crucified, and we still sin? Are you kidding me? But remember, now listen, Paul's concern here is not simply to reduce sin, but to defend the gospel of justification by faith, to, to defend how gracious of a God we serve, because after saying what he said, why in the world would we ever sin, yet we still do, we know we do. And even in that marvelous transformation, grace is there because God says his grace is still needed and God says his grace will abound because God set it up that way. Do you know the song, What a Mighty God We Serve? That's an old song we used to sing in church. What a gracious God we serve. Did you just not follow that line? I mean, I have to repeat it again. Paul's going to defend the doctrine of justification. He's not just promoting sanctification. And he says, look at everything that Jesus has done for you. Look at his love for you on the cross. Are you kidding me? You're still going to sin? But we do. But we do. And that's why God says 520 in Romans, where sin abounds, <laughs> grace much more abounds. Because God set it up that way. God is a gracious God. God is a gracious God. But he's not through. Look at verse 6. The old self has been crucified so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Okay, so what in the world does that mean? That the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Well, first, you ask yourself, is he he's describing like a physical body? Because the word that Paul uses there is not the Greek word sark. So that's the word flesh, like in our fleshliness. This is soma. This is like physical body. Okay, so what does he mean? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't mean. 
he doesn't just equate sin with physicality. So sometimes we think of sins, you know, we go right to the big one. Sex, uh, drunkenness, fleshly appetites, addictions, you know, we think of sin only in those terms. But we also have a mind of flesh, of sin. So the dehumanizing of others, we're really good at it. The ignoring, the judging, the devaluing of people, the self-promotion, a terrible twisted tongue. That all starts in our mind. Therefore, sin is, is roaming in our thoughts and our souls. And you have to realize this. The, but Paul says the body of sin then is, is sin expressing itself through our bodies, which includes our minds. Sin, sin getting us to agree with its demands. So he may mean our that, or he may mean like our entire body of work. Sometimes you hear in the professional football leagues, they say his entire body of work, judge him on that. So he could mean that, or he could mean this, and this is what I kind of think he means. In some parts in the ancient world where Paul lived, believe it or not, the penalty for murder was, was if the dead body was found, the punishment for the murderer would be that they would tie that dead body to the guilty person. So that everywhere you went, you had a dead body tied to you. Can you imagine anything more terrible? So Paul may have been speaking like this. Our sinful nature, our sin nature, which we brought into the world. Jesus Christ untied it from us. Okay? Why in the world would you pick up a dead body, which is still kicking and screaming, and tie it back to yourself? Why would you do that? Verse 70, see if there anyone who has died has been set free from sin. But we still sin. We don't have to, but we do. And so I go back to what I've been saying. Paul's ultimate objective in this context is to tell the Christians, our old men has been crucified with Christ. We are entirely delivered even from the dead body where sin reigned. Therefore, how monstrous of a thought it would be to suggest, as some people did, and still to, chapter 6, verse 1, that we continue in sin so that grace might abound. Because the whole objective of grace and of salvation is to deliver us from sin. Not to let us sin. In personality, intentionally, finally in the body. How then can you say that the gospel of justification by faith says, let us continue in sin that grace may abound. Paul, Paul, how can, how can someone say to Paul, your gospel is too soft on sin. We need more morality. Paul's like, no, because the new man, the new person is feeding on grace. They're not feeding on unaided law. They're not, not feeding on imperatives. You know, you better do this and you, and you better do that. Because those things kill. Only the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ fuels and frees a convert. Now, if you think about it, we sing it all the time. Was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. And so the purpose is clear. 
we need not be any longer slaves to sin. Okay, so it's one thing to be a sinner, but it's quite another thing to be a slave. We can't say anymore, I can't help it. We cannot say as a Christian, I am dominated by the power of sin. But I promise you, because of Jesus Christ, God will always say, I forgive you. Now listen, he will always say, I forgive you. His grace will always be abounding. And God is comfortable with that arrangement because God is the one who created it. You understand that? God is the one who created that arrangement. So, so we still have sins besetting sins. Sins that cause us to fail over and over again. At least I do. We're called to resist those sins. And the greatest Christians must fight tooth and nail all their lives against those things. But in the final analysis, we have been set free. And Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, keeps dragging us back to the cross of Jesus Christ to explain it. You see it there, verse 7, anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And Paul will say in verse 11, and we'll get to that next week, Lord willing, likewise to you. Likewise to you. Now, if you think about it, is there anything other, is there anything better than the Christian life? Is this not reasonable? This is so reasonable. And, and this is not just for a moment. This is forever. And this is why I've told you so many times, Christianity is just not an ethic. It's about a union with a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me close by saying this. I'm sure that most of you know that this past Friday was Juneteenth. It's a very, very important holiday. And if you don't know anything about it, essentially, Juneteenth recognized that it took two and a half years for the slaves in Galveston, Texas, to understand that they had been set free by President Lincoln when he wrote out the Emancipation Proclamation. So on January 1, 1863, it became the law of the land that there will no longer be slaves in America. But... It wasn't until June 19th, 1865, that the slaves of Texas found out that they were free. Two and a half years wasted. Wasted. Christians, we are set free. Let's not waste our lives. Let's pray together. Father, your forgiveness and your compassion for us far exceeds our wildest expectations. When the Old and New Testament says there is no one like you, there is no one like you. So we want to thank you for your mercy through Jesus Christ. We want to thank you that in Christ we have been given the perfect record of his perfect life and love as a gift. We need grace not only to live in that truth, but probably for most of us here, we need grace to rest 
and to rejoice and to live in that truth. That your name may be glorified and that we may stand in your power and in your grace in Christ alone forever and ever, world without end. Finally, will you bless this day for everyone here and everyone listening? Some of us are really tired and we need your peace and raise grace. And we pray that you would give that to us for Jesus' sake. Amen.